Hi, I'm Nitin. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Acer. If you speak to any fashion retailer, you will come away convinced that the future of retail is omnichannel. But what exactly does omnichannel mean? It means that you build an organization in which your online sales and offline sales are not working in different silos, but are complementing each other. Customers may visit your store to discover products and then buy them online. If you can get visibility of customers and fulfill their needs seamlessly across channels, then it is a winning strategy for the new normal. But what does it take to build an organization that is truly omni-channel from the ground up? That is the question that Nitin Chhabra, founder of Ace Total, answers in this episode of the Founder Thesis Podcast. Nitin is a veteran of the retail space, having built up Reliance's fashion retail business in India. He shares his fascinating journey from starting Ace Total as a SaaS business to help other brands become omni-channel, till the moment of realization when they decided to be a retainer themselves and how they built from the ground up a truly omni-channel retail organization. Today, Ace Turtle is a $100 million fashion retailer behind some of the most loved brands in India and is truly setting a benchmark for retailers to go omni-channel. Stay tuned and subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast and any audio streaming app to learn how to create the dominant businesses of tomorrow from ground up. So I started off my retail journey with the Arvind. And there I worked with them for about close to seven odd years. Arvind has, when I left, there was Arrow, Lee Wrangler. There were the three main brands. Tommy had just been launched. And we, of course, they had Flying Machine, Newport, and their Megamart, what they call on the value side. So that was the portfolio they had. And some of these were in-house brands and some were franchisees. Yeah, so Flying Machine and Newport and Rough and Tough. These three were their own brands. Excalibur as well. Now, remember, four brands were their own. Of course, Arrow, Lee, Wrangler, US Polo was just about signed by the, when I left. And Tommy, they were all either licenses or master franchising. Okay. And in a master franchising agreement, you are essentially doing everything from manufacturing to selling just at, under the guidance of the brand and you are giving a royalty to the brand. In case of a master franchise, the general norm is, it means essentially you can't do your own product. You have to buy products from there, but you can do retail and marketing in the local market. And then I moved on from Arvind, which I spent about close to eight years. Then I moved on to Reliance and it was me, my boss at Arvind at that point of time and two of my other colleagues. Uh, we all quit Arvind and we joined Reliance to set up Reliance Brands. So we were the four people who started off the Reliance Brands. And at Reliance, it was like a startup within a corporate. And uh, there I was wearing multiple hats. I mean, all of us are wearing multiple hats because... It was literally just four of us and we started adding the team, etc. So I was heading over a period of time. I was heading some businesses for them. At the same time, also responsible for international business development, which largely meant negotiate with international brands and launch them in India. Reliance Brands was doing same as what Arvind was doing. Like- yeah, Arvind was focused more on the value and that time, let's say the premium segment. Whereas Reliance Brands focus was largely on premium plus all the way to luxury. So that's how they were fundamentally different. And at that point of time, Reliance Brands was because the nature of the brand was such, you had to only import the product from the principals or their nominated factories. So that was the model at that point of time. Okay, Reliance was not manufacturing. No, Reliance Brands was not manufacturing. 
you mentioned these segments value premium plus just what are, what's the entire universe of segments see it varies from category to category but you have for the unorganized sector right which of course in india you pick up any category you will find 8% penetration 9% penetration some categories might even have 10 to 11 penetration but that's about it 90% 25% plus is still organized right so that gives you a lot of headroom for growth but if you look at the pyramid you have the unorganized unorganized sector and above that you will have above value you will have the premium above premium you will have the high premium then bridge to luxury and then luxury so if i had to say value would be something like a max a max is value then when you get into something like premium which will be let's say lee rangler levis so they'll be all premium and then your high premium would be brands like gant that will be high premium Abrishu Luxury will be your Michael Kors and Coach. And of course, Luxury will be your Gucci, Prada, LV and so on. Because you had about 10 to 12 relevant malls where you could open stores for, let's say, better brands or let's say high premium brands, etc. And there was no multi-brand channel, literally. Like you have in Macy's, for example, in US, right? You can build a brand with Macy's because you can get that large volume from them because they have about close to 900, 1000 doors and the productivity is very high. And you have so many of them in the US, right? They also have Nordstrom and so on and so forth. Yeah. And then the value side, you have Target and you'll have Walmart. Whereas in India, you had, you have Shopstop, Lifestyle, Pantalone, but though none of them have that kind of a scale like these American department stores uh, or the big box retailers do. So as a result, all the brands are forced to focus on retail. And again, on retail, if you are on the high premium segment, the challenge was where will you open stores? Because again, those 10, 12 malls again, you will go to. They had come in. You had, Mintra had just about pivoted. You had Flipkart, but Flipkart's not in fashion, was in that time of the category. And I do remember that uh, one of the platforms met us and they uh, spoke to me to say that they wanted one of our brands at that point of time. And we had Timberland as one of the portfolio brands. So they wanted Timberland. And I asked them, okay, what is your current average selling price? They told me, if I remember right, it's about 600 odd rupees was their average selling price. And the Timberland starting price point that time was about 8,000 rupees. So the question I had was that, how will this work out? They were quite convinced about it. We did start business in a small way. And, and when we launched with them, we saw the orders started coming in from cities like Jamshedpur, Guwahati, and so on, which were not even in the 15-year business plan of Timberland. So that was definitely an eye-opener that this is, there is something there. So there was an issue of reach. There are aspirational customers which are all over. But e-commerce could be that way to reach those customers in the pockets. And there was one particular retailer I remember, John Lewis. They were out of UK. They were using their stores to fulfill the orders as well for the online orders, right? So this model seemed very interesting to me. And because I felt that today, as consumers, that point of time itself, I mean, consumers never have been channel bound, right? Today, we call it omni-channel or whatever. Those terminologies came on later. But And consumers' adoption is always way faster because they don't have any legacy, any processes or any hindrances to start uh, to uh, resistance to change. At the same time, reach is what e-commerce was giving you. So thought process there was that why don't we work out a model where, uh, you know, we are um, connecting both online and uh, offline to make the user best of both, both worlds. That was the whole thought process. Then we, I spoke to a colleague, my colleague who was very, he was working with me there as well because very joined us after the four of us joined, very was the first set of people we hired. And then I spoke to him that this is the thought process I have. And I think this will be important going forward where people, I don't know how many people really discovered or were able to mine gold, but the people who were selling the showers made a lot more money. 
instead of building an Amazon, you would build a Shopify, basically. Yes, exactly. So we both quit our jobs. We served a longish notice period. And then we started off. We both came from retail background. So we knew what the problems of retail were, right? But we didn't understand technology that well. We, of course, took some angel money. And we first started hiring people from IBM and larger companies. And then we realized that that was a mistake we made. Because in these larger organizations, people work on small pieces. And what you need is you're building something from scratch and you just a very different mindset, right? So that you will not find in the corporate world. So, and then we started getting into the founder circles, started meeting some other people. And then we got into those right circles to get the people who love to build things. So that's where I would say, literally, we took it about a year to start going on that. And finally, we got the right team. And then we started building. And then these brilliant minds would come out with the, the architecture. And of course, then we'll write the software. And we launched in about a year's time. 2013 is when you quit your jobs. So I think, yeah, 2013, we quit our jobs. And 2014 is when we started the operation, or, or rather we started full-time working on Easter. We registered the company in 2013, but we started, all of us joined in 2014. In fact, January itself, the beginning of the year. Initially, well, the idea was that we will help the brands to do business with their on their websites. Help the brands do business on their website. We will integrate the brand's website onto our platform and the fulfillment will happen from the stores. So that was the model. So fulfillment was happening from the stores where the orders were coming from online. That was the initial thesis we started. So you built a bridge between their offline retail system and their D2C system because typically these systems don't talk to each other in most companies. That's it. And that's what a platform would do. And this was a subscription model, like a SaaS? Actually, initially, we had different sorts of models. We had five, six models, whatever the client agreed on, we had those models, right? So there was nothing specific. The model eventually evolved into a subscription, which became a minimum, and a revenue share as the upside. So we would charge a revenue share, and the revenue share was a tiered model. So the more commerce happens to the platform as a percentage, we would charge less, but we would get paid more from an amount perspective. So we focused on the enterprise side of the business. So we were very clear, we we're working with large brands. Let's protect the downside by having a subscription. And how much percentage? So we would charge typically about 3 or odd percent and of the net sales value and of which was, which was going through a platform. And as they cross certain thresholds, that 3 would become beyond the threshold 2 and then become 1 and so on and so forth. So that was a, a revenue share model we worked on. And then subscription free would be about, depending on what all use cases they were live with, because over a period of time, in the, they were, it evolved and we made all the channels part of the same platform. So that then it really became omni-channel. So depending on number of channels, what all use cases, we would charge anywhere between 1 lakh to 3 lakh rupees a month as a subscription fee. And what did the software do? Did it own the process till customer doorstep or did it receive the order from the D2C website, figure out which is the store that can fulfill it, pass it on to that store and that's where it ends? Yeah, so quickly we realized that if we have to do more business, we need to have as many channels as possible, right? So our thought that time was not, let's say we were not even thinking omni-channel or whatever. We we're just thinking that how do we generate more commerce from the same client to the platform? So then we integrated the marketplaces as well. We integrated wherever they had a, a social commerce piece as well. So whoever had whatever channel, we started integrating. We also created an endless aisle uh, for the in-store guys to use to, so that they didn't have something in the store. Or it could be shipped out from some other store, directly to the consumer or to the store. Like a standard industry term? Yeah, it's a standard industry term now, more or less. Yeah. I like this uh, first time hearing it. So then we had a lot more channels. And then the idea was 
Okay, then then the whole thing about started. How do we make sure that no matter where the consumer is connecting with the brand through commerce, we are able to fulfill their commerce aspirations from that particular brand. So then their entire inventory was connected through the platform. So all their stores, all the fulfillment centers. In some cases, they had distributors. Their distributors' inventory also was under the platform. So we literally what we gave them was a single view of inventory, right? Which was which the platform enabled. And then what we would do is the single view of inventory will publish across all the demand channels. Now, what do you need for to for commerce? What does the user need on any of the platforms for commerce? You need to know the inventory, right? Where the product availability is there. Second, you need to know the catalog. Or you need to see, uh, you need to push the catalog so that the user sees the catalog and makes a purchase decision. And then third was the delivery SLA, right? That you hope then how much time you deliver to the end customer. So all these things were being published on the platform onto these demand channels. And when an order would come from any of those channels, the algorithm would then figure out that which is, number one, the right fulfillment point to allocate the order to. That could be a store, could be a fulfillment center, and then it gets allocated to them. And then over a period of time, all the different edge cases also we developed to take care of, which was what happens if there are multiple products in a single cart, in a single order, but those are not available in a single store. How do we split the orders? Which all places the order should need needs to get split to? Because you have to, the promise to the customer is already made when the order is placed. So what a platform, Rubicon would always was, SLA was, that now made the promise. So that's what Rubicon would try and do. And that's what the algorithm will then allocate. They would be having some points, let's say a weightage. There would be some weightage for other parameters like the cost of fulfillment, time taken to delivery, the cost of fulfillment and so forth. And then every time an order would hop, Say we allocated the order to one fulfillment point, let's say a retail store, but they're not able to fulfill the order for whatever reason, right? And then the order hops to the next stock point. Then the parameters weights would change because now probability is a far bigger, important parameter for you rather than cost because making sure the promises met is far more important to the customer. There's already been a delay. Yeah. And then we'll also allocate the last mile partner accordingly because what would happen is when the order would get fulfilled, let's say from a retail store, then we would know when it gets invoiced. Then we would know that, okay, this is now the stop point where it's finally going to get shipped out from. Because when we allocate the order, we are not sure it's going to get fulfilled in the same place or not, right? It hops based on various reasons. It might be some customer has walked into the store and picked the same product. It's only one product line or is damaged or there's a mismatch in system inventory or physical inventory. There could be various. So, so anyway, so what would happen is the moment it gets invoiced from the store, so now we know this is the point going to get shipped out. Then we'd run one more algorithm to allocate the last mile partner also, because not all last mile partners are efficient in every pin code. So then from based on the past data across the platform, across all the transactions, we would say, okay, now whether this is the last mile partner or the other last mile partner is relevant, we'll allocate the manifest to them through the API. They would get the manifest and then they would come and collect the order and deliver to the end customer. And the same process would be followed for returns also. And we kept growing. So you brought the last mile partners along with you or you? We integrated because because these brands alone didn't have that much volume. We as a platform had a lot more volume. So we were able to negotiate better rates, a better service and so on and so forth. So like say, if it is hyper local, then maybe a shadow fax or someone like that would be doing it. If it is intercity, then you would give it to someone who does intercity and accordingly. Yeah. And then there will be multiple partners because like I mentioned, because then the platform will decide that, okay, which is the right you know, partner to give it. Right. And again, there were other parameters there which were considered. Like, for example, SLA was the most important parameter. And then how many times delivered in the SLA and so on and so forth. Cost was, of course, a matter as well. And then later on, more optimizations were done. So it just kept getting smarter. You handle returns. Yeah. So returns would like be a 
double whammy for you. On the one hand, there is that cost of processing the and then on the other hand, you are getting that revenue is actually coming down. Yeah, in the initial set of clients, that was the mistake we made in the commercial arrangements. But in the and as we learned, in the when the most of the clients started coming in, we then started charging for that as well. But for the logistics cost in the business, we were not bearing it. That was a pass through. Yeah, that was a pass through, right? But yes, the hosting cost, the it's going through our platforms. Those costs were, you know, our costs initially. Would he see that unit, and would you ship it from Kerala to Jaipur? It did happen. It did happen, and then there were some clients which were okay with it, depending on which category. Because we started with fashion, then we got into eyewear, we got into watches, footwear, we got into pharma. So depending on the margin, yeah, yeah. And we also had FMCG, PNG. So there were a lot of different categories. So depending on the category, they were okay with it because they had the margins. But and then with each new category, we learned something new and how each category works, different intricacies. For example, we also had consumer durables. And there the after sales part is also important. So we learned from a lot of these different industries. It was it was quite fascinating. By the time you hit this plateau, which year are we talking about now? When this this plateau started happening, I would say around 2019. And how many clients did you have? We had that time about close to 80 odd clients. And what kind of revenue were you doing? So I think about five million. Five million USD year Yeah, yeah. How much funds have you raised by then? By 2019? By then, we had raised about 5 million. So then what happened was that we, existing clients had a plateau, right? So the only way the growth was coming was through the newer clients. And then we got deeper into why the existing clients are getting a plateau. So a few of the things which we realized was that one was, of course, adoption, which was always a challenge because you're working with large enterprise organizations. And fundamentally, you're telling them to think consumer, not channel, but they're not built that way, right? Their entire systems are not built that way. Give me, give me an example of this. So how a retail organization is, or a brand, let's say, let's talk about any XYZ brand, or let's say the entire organization would be structured, would be on the front end side, on the business side, they would have a team for retail stores. It's a retail team, which is for their own retail stores. Then they would have a team for your distributors, which are working with these mom and pop stores. Then third, they would have department stores, the so-called modern trade at that point of time. Then e-commerce had started. Then there was one more channel, one more team for e-commerce. So each of these teams were siloed, working in silos. So each of these teams had their own teams to manage, large teams to manage each of these channels with their own layers. At the same time, inventory, which was meant for these channels. So and none of this inventory was fungible between the channels. So we also faced some resistance where the retail team would say, oh, if I give this for the online order, what if one hour later or tomorrow, an offline customer comes to me? I have only two pieces of this. So let me not give it, let me try and send it if it's not part of my target. Right. The uh, epitome of what you wanted them to be like would be, say, Lenskart, like probably best in class in terms of that approach of customer, not channel. Yeah, so Lenskart is also has fewer channels, but larger brands, typically traditional larger brands would have multiple channels. Second other issue which we saw that we were only providing software at that point of time. We were only giving, the, uh, giving technology, right? And that's what we thought our role was to just focus on that. But when we deep dived and we saw that why some of the clients were hitting $200 per day or $300 per day or $500 per day at that point of time and not able to scale beyond it because they did not have the operational capability, especially on the logistics and fulfillment side. Their warehouses were meant to service largely B2B. And now e-commerce, which was a smaller business at that point of time, has started working. But those warehouses were not able to fulfill orders at scale. Warehouses were built for do. 10 units, 20 units, a particular uh, SQO, put them in the carton and this is a whole different ball game, e-commerce fulfillment, single shipments and all of that. So they were not used to that. That was one challenge. Second issue on the 
store side also what do they realize that for example if you want to do fulfillment scale from stores as well you would need those fulfillment tables those quality assurance processes you need some space at the at the back end and this was not planned yeah this was not all planned at all right? so the last mile logistics because we had left it to them they were not able to manage it because their orders were less so they were not getting enough let's say love from the logistics company as well not they were able to get the right prices etc so we said oh, if we have to scale we have to start offering some of these operational services as a value added service so to the clients who were using our platform we started off offering optional value added services you want fulfillment centers you take fulfillment centers from us right you want last mile logistics we will offer that service to you you want customer support we will offer customer support to you right so you want cataloging because that is one big challenge right the goods will be in the fulfillment centers and stores but the catalog will take 3 months to get created because again there was no ecosystem and they were not so so then we also been started doing cataloging for them and charging them on on paper use for those value added services and then we started being a scale again you would almost be like amazon has that fulfilled by amazon service where they take the inventory and keep it with them and do everything there so this would be something on similar lines that Yeah, something similar, a warehouse bit or the fulfillment center bit, but the store bit will always happen from the store. But they were we were offering last mile logistics, and then and then the training. Then we also started the training bit with the customer success team. We trained the store teams every time a new store would open. At stores have a lot of churn, also they were continuous training and all of that. So all that started happening, how to fulfill the orders and all that. And then the scale has just started about hitting again. And then what happened was the pandemic struck. So when you plan your runway, you always plan that okay, that's my revenue. This is my expenses that's when it bond you never plan for a scenario where revenue will become zero right and your bonus 100% right so that does that would happen too soon too fast right w- what percentage of revenue was your burn that point of time we were about 10 to 12% debit and negative so that's where we were so not that bad but again when suddenly became zero it was 100% not only did our revenue became nil right a lot of the clients refused to pay us for our outstanding amounts with them as well right because we would raise the revenue share so we would raise invoices end of the month right for them to pay us again the other 30 days so did you have exposure to future group also that point of time discussions were going on but we didn't have fortunately for us payment terms were like 30 days after invoice you get paid like after invoice and the invoice was raised end of the month because only then we will know how much they've sold right so literally it was about close to 60 days and clients would pay anywhere between 65 to 75 days so that was our time period our investors actually helped us out a lot of credit to them they told us that we have some amount of money which we have kept for you and you draw down in tranches so uh, of course it all comes at a cost so we without thinking twice right the very next day we drew down the first tranche right because we don't know how long it's going to last right what do you mean when you say it comes at a cost so there was a convertible note so it was a discount to the next round's valuation right so that's how it was and at that point of time you don't want to negotiate anything because you're trying to survive so we did when i would give a lot of credit to our investors at that point of time and especially i think vortex did a lead role there to get us through that point of time so a lot of credit to them and then the first lockdown opened up then the platform at a very different scale not only the existing clients started scaling very fast a lot of new brands wanted to come on board the platform so it was a different problem we had right at that point of time but a good problem to have and we became a bit of positive as well this was because of increased revenues a lot of scale because cost was same right the revenue surge happened so then with that scale the profitability was a net result but it was first time in the company it was great then we also saw that on the platform some clients were scaling more than the others 
And the submission was very similar to what we discussed earlier. Uh, it was largely because of adoption, because right. it's a silent approach, multiple channels, it's a channel-wise approach. Culturally, it's difficult for them to change the processes, etc., because they've been following those for decades and decades, right? And and that's the reason why disruption always happens from outside. It's never from the industry itself. So we then start pitching to the global headquarters of those brands and to take over the entire business from end to end. When was this? Yeah, this was after the first lockdown opened up, right? We're just coming out of a lockdown. And the second lockdown, nobody knew it was going to happen or not, but it did happen. And then when the lockdown opened up, as I mentioned, a lot of the existing clients also had a very different scale. So almost all of them came back to renegotiate with us. I think we never expected the business will be growing much faster, uh, like it did. So they want to renegotiate the commercial, the revenue share largely, right? So because we were on the revenue share with almost everybody at a, a good scale. And it also got us thinking that today, 100% of our business model is dependent on third parties, right? So there has to be some amount of business which is captive to us so that we do not have a situation like this again, right? So that was the whole idea. So when we presented to the board, we presented to them that this is a SaaS vertical. We want to launch by using the same tech, same platform, everything was same, right? A new vertical called the captive vertical because it's a captive business. Because this is, there will be long-term contracts, 15 years, 20 years, right? The expectation was that instead of 3% of new I guess in retail. We'll get a better margin, but more importantly, a captive business. So we are not dependent to survive on only third parties, right? So, and our thought process was that over a period of time, this will become 25, 30% of our business. SaaS will be 70, 75%, and this will be 25, 30. That's how we all started off. In a typical retail business, what is the margin there? Like, so it depends from category to category. If we talk about fashion, classic fashion, it would be about around 60 to 65%. The EBITDA or like? Not the, the gross margin. Gross margin. Okay. And, and how much would be the EBITDA? Yeah. So the EBITDA would be typically anywhere between 10 to 12% would be of, 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 let's say, most of the good companies. Some outstanding companies like Page Industries, etc. would be around closer to 20% as well. Right. So we then started this business in the first six months itself. The business took off like a rocket. Right. Which was the first deal you cracked? Actually, we were negotiating with Toys R Us first, but what closed first was Lee and Wrangler. Wrangler already had a franchise license in India? No, they have their own subsidiary in India, right? So we took over the business from their subsidiary. And then of course, then they shut down the subsidiary. Mm. We took over the business. So in the first six months itself, on the business hit a different scale, which neither the Lee and Wrangler owners, the global owners, which the company is called Contour, they had thought about. Nor had we thought about and but for us a few things were clear one thing was that okay this scales much faster right because we have complete control over adoption over product right and we knew what more we could do to even scale it much much more faster because we could see so many inefficiencies which tech could solve right through our kind of a model how much did it scale by like when you acquired what was the top line see in the first year itself it did more then what these two brands had done ever in the history of India, and they've been there for more than 25 years. And I'm not comparing the pandemic numbers because they were much low, right? So, and of course, it grew profitably. It was a bit of positive in the first year itself. You acquired the manufacturing plants or they were working with third-party manufacturers? No, so they were working with third-party approved factories. So we then we, moved, we started working with those factories, but we added more factories as we went along and all. What about, like, so far you have the... Supply chain chops. What about the design chops? Very good question, Akshay. So what we did was from Contour, we took on board from the India subsidiary. We took on board the design and merchandising teams. Because that's the skill set which company, which they did not have. 
So that's what got migrated. So then it became very profitable. And then on the other side, we started discovering two sets of problems. One was the more we got deeper, we realized that retail had not evolved at all. So for example, how it would work is apart from the whole omnichannel commerce piece, even the retail operations was very operational heavy, very person to person interaction dependent, which essentially made it was not really scalable, right? And not very transparent. So what would happen is, for example, to manage the store, for, it was, this was done for each channel. So to manage those stores, what would happen is that you would have in a territory, you would have an area sales executive who reports to an area manager. Area manager reports to a regional manager. Regional manager reports to a national manager. And the national manager will then work with the functions in the head office, which are actually going to solve the problem. Right. So now we didn't see a need for to have all these layers. right? Because now through tech, you can connect the stores to, to you. Right? More importantly, what happens is that when all of these entire, all these layers in the retail org, when they visit these stores, the interaction that happens, it's not captured as a data point. Somebody would make a report that's and report gets marred by perception, something has got missed out and it's, and you can't make much sense out of it. Right? So, so we said, okay, the first step is how do we decipher this black box? So one, we have to start deciphering the black box. First, let's try and convert everything into a data point. So that's the first step we started off with. Then we started, oh, then we launched very quickly. I remember if I might say a dirty product, literally in about three odd sprints an app to handle retail operations, which we call Connect. In fact, we just released a couple of days back the second version of that. But anyway, so we we launched Connect. So this is like a point of sale with some added features? Uh, no, it had everything which a retail guy needs. Because see, today, earlier, the requirements or the of the consumer from the stores and the expectations were different. Also, similarly, the skill sets and the operation work for the store was different. But today, in our omni-channel environment, a store is not just fulfilling the requirements of the customer, right? Of the old world who's just coming and buying because it doesn't happen that way anymore. When you and I go out to buy something, we research online what we want to buy, right? When we go to the store, we often sometimes find we know more about the product than the poor guy who's selling us to us knows. And you can't blame him because he's got thousand products in the stores, right? And you are searching for what you want and he has to, you can't expect him to remember and go deeper on those thousands, right? So first step was it, how do we enable them to give them information on the palm of the hand? So mobile was the natural device to use that. That's why I built that mobile app called Connect, which had all the product information, right? And also to make it easier for them, they don't have to search, right? With a customer, somebody searching, it's not a good experience. We said, okay, you take the app, scan the barcode immediately. It will give you everything about the product, right? Where it's made, what it, what it goes with, even suggestions for the customer. So it's like a cheat sheet also for the store guy to tell the customer. And then you could use it as a post as well. You can also why go to the till. How did you feed the content in it? We already had the content of the catalog management system of Rubicon. Because it was just an extension of that, right? Yeah. And Rubicon is the catalog management product. No, no, Rubicon is the omnichannel commerce platform. So it has four modules. Or now it has more, but that time it had four core modules. One was catalog management system. Second was inventory management system. Third was the order management system. And the fourth was logistics management system. So the catalog management system, it will have images, content, and publish catalog and transform depending on, because each platform that built differently. So all that will happen on that. The second was inventory, which takes care of single view of inventory and so on and so forth. Right, and reduction of inventory. And because when you are doing a single view of inventory, you are ingesting inventory of multiple applications, right? Not all of them might be real-time. A lot of them are legacy applications. So all this problem we had solved over a period of time. So the inventory management system would take care of all of that. But we need real-time information for inventory, for commerce. 
And then third would be auto management system with all the heavy duty algorithms to figure out where to fulfill the order from, how the order hops, where it goes, how do you split and all of that. And then the logistics management system will be to say, okay, which whom do you allocate the order to? Has it got reached? Is not reached? Then again, that hops there. All those systems are built as a logic management. These were four core modules of Ruby. So the catalog management system was feeding into the on, on the connect, and then they would were able to see about every product. They could scan the product. They would know everything about the product. They would also know if they want to know. They would also tell them in how much time the if somebody wants some other size, whether it's lying in the back stock or it's lying in the store. That information they would also get there. So they know that okay, if it's lying in the back stock. So I have so many pieces I can go and get it till the customer. They don't have to say. Set up, wait for a while, go and check. But for us, it was a data point. It's, what are they searching for? So all these things, we, uh, what is not available in the store? So we start getting the data points. Then training. Training was the second point. Otherwise, this information never goes back. Like, yeah, they go to the boss and boss has his own corruption because inventory is not matching, system is not matching, they don't know visibility across, not real time. All those things, because all legacy systems have those problems. Even like, the window shopping behavior is never captured, but through this now, you're also capturing the window shopping behavior. So then, and we are going deeper, I might share with you whatever I can today. So so then what we did was, we said, okay, next piece is training. Training is very important, right? So how do you make sure training is done and you're not capturing? So we said, how do we get the data point? Whether the course is also right or not, right? Whether, so we said, okay, the way, best way to do it is again, thanks to the pandemic, it take a take off. Consumption of content was very high. So we said, okay, again, we'll push content through our connect app itself. We said, okay, now training modules were there. At the end of every training module, there was a quiz. And the training is product training or like behavioral training? It was product training, customer training. There were lots of these things, right? So this was second thing. Third thing we said, okay, visual merchandising. Because you were told you can't do visual merchandising because it's how you make the product look beautiful inside the store, how you put it together. You know, there you need to have hands. So, but again, we said there are other ways to do it and what we did was, it was very simple actually in the end, that again, the guidance will get published. Because we would know what merchandise is getting pushed out to the stores. Guidance will get published to the stores. Stores will have an necessary tool to follow the guidelines, set it up, take the photograph from the app itself. But there's something interesting also which happened. So initially, we're in, we suggested take the photograph from your phone and upload it. And then we started realizing well, that some of them were gaming it by uploading old photographs. <laughs> so we have to, this is interesting. So we then said, okay, you can only you can upload only from the app, you can take the photograph. So we said, okay, then you take the photograph from the app, publish, and we will, our visual merchandising team sitting in the corporate office will get it. Uh, they will put pins on it to say, okay, this work correction needs to be done. And again, we gamified it. Based on who was doing it faster and better, they were being rewarded as The central team would decide, for example, that these five jeans models should be put on the mannequins. Yeah, so in the office, we created a mock of a store. So in that mock, they will put it all together, take photographs and put guidelines, step one, step two, step three, step four, have videos and also guidelines, text and images and push it through the VM module on Connect, right? Then we also started looking at other things as well, typically attendance. So attendance we also made on Connect because attendance was again like a manual thing. So we geofenced all the stores. So the moment you are in, we know you're in. But more importantly, now we are getting data points. So now we know the footfalls which are coming in, at what point of time the footfalls are higher. We installed smart cameras in the stores. The old world footfall counter, what is that? So essentially what you do is if you walk past it, it will count you as a footfall. These cameras had, like there was a machine vision algorithm running. No, the cameras had just smart vision, nothing else, right? And every cloud today gives you that. So 
and we are open source guys, right? For us to so anyways, we got the hardware from somebody else and then put in our applications on the back of it to get it going. But largely then what the smart cameras started doing. We knew that when you were coming in, how many people are coming in? We when the every time a new store guy would join in, we would take the image of the store guy. So we know the camera would have been stored, so it will not count as a footfall. Right. At the same time, when let's say we will know that okay, how many people walked in? And then we will not say, okay, Akshay has walked in because we'll not take your PI data, right? So even if you buy from us in the store, but we will assign you a number. So we know that XYZ34X walked in. And, and second time when they walked in, how many months is actually coming back again? Which means how many times we need to refresh the store, right? Yeah, yeah. Refresh the store as well, right? Then we started seeing that how many people means that how many girls start coming in, how many women are coming in, how many kids are coming into the stores. How many coming together? How many coming alone? So we start dissecting what is what is approximate age group? Yes, the demographics. We we start getting all this data as well. Stores are all company operated. Uh, no, we do all franchise stores. So, but it's controlled by us. Right? So we control the assortment. So how the model works is when we took over the business of Fleet Angler, we shut down all the wholesale business. Why? Because on wholesale, you don't get the consumer data back because we want to know what the consumer is buying or not buying. We as soon as possible. We wanted to know what's the price sensitivity. So we, and all this data, we feed back into our supply chain. And then that's how the new products are designed and manufactured as well. So that's like a full loop. Wholesale would be providing to the, the, the mom and pop stores would be getting, right? We got rid of all the mom and pop stores. We shut down all the distributor business, which was there. We went to all department stores and spoke to them. You share the data with us. We don't buy the, we don't want the PI data, but we definitely want the sales data as soon as you can. If you can give us real time. You'll take it. If your systems are not aligned, we will work with you to get the data. And wherever we got the data, only there we worked. Wherever the data was not there, we just discontinued the channel of the partner. We were very, very clear because that would just break the whole model, right? So that's how the whole model started. And we started discovering new problems. We said, okay, now, even in the genes, we saw a lot of genes were getting altered. So one, you are from a cost perspective, which means your consumption of fabric is higher. You can save some money there. Second, from a consumer perspective, the consumer has to get altered. Then wait to show a good consumer experience. Yeah. And the third was the whole model is that they will give you some sort of a voucher, right? That alteration is done, right? And then you will call or he'll call. So it's the whole journey was quite broken. So what we're just making live now is to capture data point on the alterations also. What fits are getting altered, what lengths are getting altered, how much is getting altered. So everything is now happening on connect. And the, and the consumer gets to know and connect itself that yes, your has been submitted, it has been altered. Consumer can select you want home delivery. Or you want to come and collect. If you want home delivery, then pay delivery charge, which a lot of customers don't mind paying, right? Or if you want to carry it, you can come to the store. So they'll know. So, but more importantly, now we got that journey is quite seamless. We're getting a data point out of that, right? And multiple data points, right? Consumer data point, we're getting the product data point as well. So I think these are some of the things which start getting added. Then we looked at the factory side. We thought, we saw that in the beginning, we will come to know a week before the factory was supposed to deliver us some products to say, is getting delayed by another two weeks. We say, but how can you come to know a week before it's getting delayed by two weeks, right? So, because again, it was like a black box. So then now, the next phase is we are now start deciphering the black box on the factory side as well. So that's what the new tech which we're building on that side to say, how can we get clear visibility there as well? And how can this whole system become more and more agile? It's been a good journey. So whatever we're building now, the same tech is now being used by the newer brands as we put into the funnel. So the next is Toys RS, Movies RS. We're going to announce one more brand next week. And there are some more in the pipeline. So do you collect the customer's information when he actually buys? That is like standard practice, right? 
Yes, because yeah, that's impractical. We take consent there, right? So we take consent and we collect that data. You're right. So we also have a single view of customer, but for customers who have given us consent to use the data and connect with them. How are you able to leverage that? Well, let's say in the fashion business, if the repeat purchases are not that high, so that you can reward like an airline or a hotel with the loyalty points. But yes, after a certain point of time, when we have a large portfolio of brands, which I think we should have by end of next year, then we could, we could do across across brands. So, but today it's more on the on the CRM side, right? Uh, on the relationship and engagement. So we on the, we study the behavior as well because the behavior is very interesting, right? How does it help you? You're able to build cohorts, so you, you now know that how. And we are seeing there are some channel specific behaviors also, which uh, we are building cohorts on to try and figure it out. And we have seen when a lot of times now people want deals and they're trying to go to online, right? And the new product, they always want to try in the stores. I would not say always, but that's a large cohort wants to do that. So I think we are understanding a lot of things and we are actually now building a few more things on to take care of that. What have you understood? Give me some more insights. Like this is an interesting insight that for new launches. So one thing, one thing is also very clear that the online ESPs right, are higher in the smaller towns than the metros and tier one towns. ESP average selling price. Average selling price. Yeah. So they are buying better products during the sale events, the discount events, as compared to what your metro and tier one guys are buying. Right. So and our relations are also higher. And like I mentioned to you, there are sort of customers who are going online only for deals, coming for new products from stores. But one thing is very clear: we lost women's wear, right? Because what the data also showed us that. There were a lot of women customers walking into the stores and we didn't have women's merchandise. So we launched women's merchandise and we did make small quantities into a few other channels because we were just worried that whatever doesn't sell, right? because we know the football is there, but will they adopt? Right? And we launched with Wrangler and Wrangler does have that biker image and all of that. So yeah, exactly. So we were just kind of concerned and, but to our surprise, it sort of really very well. Right, and now we are doing a much larger piece around women's wear for both Wrangler and Lee, where we're signed to big celebrities to promote them as well. But how do you know the same customer is buying online? No, but we have websites, right? So we know, we get the data from the websites. Right, okay, got it. Okay, so what are the brands now besides Lee and Wrangler? Which We have Lee, Wrangler, we have Toys R Us, right? We have Baby R Us. And the next brand we're announcing next week, which is going to be launched in December. So that's the fifth brand. And we'll be announcing, it's in the fashion space. We don't make the announcement is happening next week. By the time we release, it's going to be, we typically release about six, eight weeks after recording. So on the women's side, the two big celebrities we have signed. For Rangla, we signed Shweti Nandana, right? So, and on Lee, we have signed uh, Sara Ali Khan. Lee and Ragnar have women's wear across the globe, or this is like an India innovation? Internationally, they have. India also, they had earlier. But few years back, they had stopped doing it because the sales were low. But the fifth brand, which you're signing up, is also in the fashion space. In the fashion space. So we focus brands largely on in the space where the trends don't change fast. Right? For example, jeans, you don't, the trends don't change as fast, right? So that's why we are staying away from, let's say, women's fast fashion and some of those categories, which are very trendy. So that's not part of a business model because we prefer businesses because there you have, where the risk is higher, the margins are lower. We prefer businesses which have good margins and, and we can go deeper because the deeper you go in your production cycles, your margin also increases. Focus on a certain set of brands 
uh, from that uh, perspective. And then also we are also focused on brands which are focused on the Indian middle class. Because that's a very, we are not going for luxury. We are not going for value. Because the moment you go beyond that pricing segment, right, the, the TAM drops, the market size drops dramatically. And the moment you go below that, it's a large market, but the unit economics drop dramatically. So we, we want to stay in this middle class sector. So we are focused on brands which are more on the, I would not call them classics, but maybe classics, but which where the trend don't change rapidly. And third, which have a salience in the Indian market and in, with the Indian consumers. So, so the brand which we partner. So what we do is when a new brand approaches or we look at approaching our plan, our go to market for brands, we look at the organic searches. How many organic searches are happening? Okay, okay. For Lee and Wrangler, what is the offline to online split? How much of the sales is? It's it's 50-50. Lee and Wrangler are very like legacy brands, right? Well-established in the offline world. Yeah, 135-year-old brands. I mean, these are iconic brands, literally heritage brands, as they call them. Even in India, they've been around for decades. And Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's and that's what we're working on now. Because, see, the consumers keep evolving, right? Consumers are moving on to... So, the way our whole model is also structured is because what Rubicon does is because since it's not it's channel agnostic, right? All our assets, whether it's inventory, additional assets, they're all connected to Rubicon. So they are being transformed. So we have to launch a new channel. We don't have to create new assets. We have to just create a transformation layer or largely some API integrations happen and we can go live on a new channel. So for us, cost of adding a new channel is very, very low. So also the remove channel is also very low and the speed is very fast. For Toys R Us, like with Ra- Lee and Wrangler, you already got retail stores when you took over. Toys R Us also? Actually, we got the retail stores. We shut down 85% of those. Because why we shut them down was because we evaluated. Because we knew how importance of adoption. Right? So, we evaluated all the franchises and the locations and everything. But more important, it was also about the franchise apart from the location. Whether the franchise is adaptable to our kind of a model. Because we are trying to do new things. We are trying to challenge everything. So, in a quarter, we might be doing 10 new things. But only 3 might work. Four work, brilliant. But that's normally the hit ratio. So if uh, franchisee also need to be adaptable to that kind of a model, right? So we, that was very important for us. So we met almost everybody. And the teams met and then we decided to take that call. That which are the ones we want to partner with, which ones we want might not be fitting into our kind of a model. So we reduced that by 15 odd percent. But uh, we opened about 40 odd stores last year. This year we're opening about 50 stores each in Lee and Ryla. There'll be about 100 stores coming up this year. And then, of course, Toys R Us, Baby Taras. Okay. You now also have a franchisee onboarding team yes. uh, to set up. That's right. And then when every time we do, as we go deeper, we discover there are new problems which tech can solve. Right. So we just go deeper there and there. So we took a decision. It was a tough decision for us last September to exit the SaaS business. Because, we, because the most premium resource for us is the bandwidth of a tech team. Right. So, so we wanted to spend that bandwidth to build the tech to solve the new problems which you are facing, right? And we were discovering and there are enough problems to solve here. So we decided to start serving termination notice on our SaaS clients from September last year onwards. Our target was by March, we'll get out of all the SaaS businesses. Okay. And what's your ARR currently or do you have a target ARR? So we crossed 55 million last year, USD. This year we're going to cross 100. Amazing. So the SaaS business would really have been like a very, very small. Yeah, even, it is not even a million dollars. No. Insignificant percentage of this. Right. Yeah, makes sense to shut that down. At, at peak, before we decided to take the call, we were at 10 million. So we had let go of the $10 million business. 
Okay, amazing. So you have raised a fair amount of funds, more than $40 million till date, I believe. So what's been the journey there? What are some lessons you learned with respect to fundraise? I think the first, so we raised first money in the initial rounds was for the SaaS business. Right. You're like a new age reliance brands basically today. Yeah. So we're like a new age retail business. The fundamental is technology. For example, we don't have a sales team in the company. A franchisee onboarding team is somewhat like a sales team, right? Like, But they're not selling to the franchisee. They just appoint the franchisee, finalize the location and then they move on. Right. That's their role. You have enough uh, inbound leads for appoint- franchisee appointments or like how do you? Yeah, so that team that team works on that funnel as well, right? And then what happens is then the system takes over. Based on the data, what we get, what's selling, we optimize and then we decide on the pricing. We change the assortment to keep on moving because no franchisee is, can select what they want for the store. It's done through the system itself. It's a, it's a lean model because we have, with a much fewer people, you build this, but it's more scalable as well, right? Because the same is same tech is not getting used for multiple people. You can open multiple stores, you can open multiple online channels as they, as they keep evolving. So all that can start happening from the same base. So it's so it's in a, in a good space. Yeah, so it's, yeah, so in a way you're right. I would say it's more like a new age page. That's how I would describe it. Because page also like us is taking long-term licenses of brands. They have Jockey and they have uh, Speedo, right? So they have two brands, right? So so it's similar. So we have long-term licenses of brands. They also do design manufacturing. We also do it. The difference is that Page has built a very good business, sound business on operation efficiency. And our business is being built on tech efficiency. Okay. Help me understand the manufacturing piece here. So you want to have like an asset light approach on manufacturing, like work with third-party vendors. And- yeah. So at both the ends, we are asset light. So we don't like CapEx, right? It goes from the SaaS phase. So neither do we invest in CapEx on the factory side, nor we invest in the CapEx on the store side. So the franchisees invest in the CapEx. The rest of it, demand-driven, uh, to drive the demand, assortment, inventory, all that we take care of. Um, and on the factory side, we work with third-party manufacturers. We started off with manufacturers who were working with other brands as well, because these are large brands, so they need to work with compliant factories, where not in terms of product quality, but also in terms of social compliance and so on. So, which reduces the pool to work with X number of factories. But now we start adding more factories, but we also now start adding captive factories, factories which are only doing business for us because now we have scale. So that transformation would lead to, say, a purchase order getting released faster. Like, So those are already there. So we're not so worried about the purchase orders, but we are worried about the visibility. The visibility of what, on the production line, where is it? Where, what, what is the, in how much time it can be delivered? So we want to optimize on that. How will you get this visibility? By deploying tech on, on the factories as well. So on their systems as well. There's a combination of both. So today, for example, our quality assurance is already happening through smart cameras. In our model, it is, we just see on the smart cameras and we identify the problem if there is and the approvals happen digitally. But we're also working on further improving it. So, so there are lots of these areas where we're going deeper. But on the factory side, everything is being literally built from scratch because we realized there were not enough products based on what we require in the market. Okay, so like a factory management system where you punch in the order, then it will generate the... See, they already have some system or the other, because these are large factories. But to draw the data that, you know, where exactly it is in there, because their factories are meant for their own purpose, for different purpose. We need to have complete visibility because if data is telling us, right, this particular style has slowed down, this wash has slowed down. Can we change the wash by the way? 
So once we have the visibility, we can change all of that, right? It, it becomes far more nimble, far more agile. And then even today, the lead time between the design to factory is, is a few days. Can it be literally just a few hours, right? So we're just trying to work on all of these uh, pieces as well. My last question to you, how have you evolved as a person in this entrepreneurial journey? I think one thing is, and I would say that, and, and I know pandemic played a big role in it. So you need to have an ecosystem of people whom you can have an open discussion with about anything, right? It need not be just on the business or something, which is some business relationships or something you want to sound up with somebody. Because what happens is that boards tend to become more formal. Right. And then that's how they are supposed to be. So whether you call it advisory board or you call it your ecosystem of some people who are, who understand a founder's journey, preferably other entrepreneurs, right? Whether it's how to, which investors to go to, which things they would have done, you learn from them. Few things you want to sound off. Sometimes you have doubt, you talk to them and you realize that you're not alone. Others have also gone through it. And I think that ecosystem, both in terms of the emotional support and the learnings, both on the business side as well and the network. I think that is very, very critical. So I think that's very, very important. And I think second is what I would say is that go deeper into the problem, but don't fall in love with the idea, right? So, and, and like it has evolved for us. But if you see that's how it started off, is how it needs to be, then that's very well. Start having problems because our market's evolving at a very, very rapid pace. Consumers evolving, right? And third is what I would say that there is no better time in India than, to, than now to be an entrepreneur. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in.